Often people want to know if you're supposed to stop your thinking during meditation. Sometimes people have ideas of resting in spacious, non-dualistic awareness without thought, and then try to create that as they're sitting. So I want to talk about this, maybe not uh, totally directly, but try to frame it in a different way. So thinking is really just what the mind does naturally. That's kind of its function. Like the function of your eyes is to see. Your ears are hearing. And your mind does thinking. So we can't really just turn it off. I don't think it needs to be suppressed or changed when you sit down to meditate. But the natural thinking of the mind does need to be skillfully met. Just like the, the other sense doors. Part of our practice is to notice what's going on at those and not get caught up in it, not feed it unskillfully in various ways. You know, so that if you hear something, it doesn't become the basis for a huge amount of suffering because you get all wrapped up or upset about it. Similarly, if there's thinking, you don't want to get all wrapped up in it or upset about it. So I said that it needs to be skillfully met. There are times when some kind of conscious discernment through thinking is actually very useful on the path. We should be doing it. And there are also times where it isn't very useful. So it's not really a yes or no question, but one of understanding a little bit more about the path. These are some lines from the Dhammapada. Abstaining from all evil, doing what is good, purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. So it does use the words good and evil, which is interesting. But I think uh, as I talk through this, you'll have a sense that that's somewhat nuanced. We could also translate good and evil as skillful or unskillful or things that lead toward and away from suffering. So we're asked to abstain from doing things that lead toward suffering and to actively do the things that lead away from suffering. And those in themselves purify the mind pretty well, but in addition we're told to purify the mind. And that this is really the essence of the teachings. So there's probably something important to unpack there. So we could apply this to the case of thinking. 
when there is a lot of strong thinking going on, which happens sometimes, we can easily see that it contributes to suffering. It's um, especially if we're not aware. Yeah, so getting caught up in obsessive thought is definitely suffering. We've all done that. We've probably all done that on the cushion in addition to in our daily life. It's clearly suffering. Even if the thoughts, it doesn't matter if the thoughts are pleasant or unpleasant, uh, there's still some element of stress in obsessive thinking. Of course, the unpleasant is easy to understand, but even pleasant thoughts that go on and on, like say some kind of fantasy, um, take us away from the present moment and they have an inherent um, yeah, energy to them. Agitation. And so we learn various techniques to avoid getting caught in obsessive thinking. Some of these techniques involve skillfully redirecting the mind. So the mind is thinking anyway, so we redirect it toward something more skillful to think about. This is a quote from Aya Sudama. In meditation, we can transcend thinking, not all at once and not by willpower, but by skillfully and repeatedly redirecting the mind. So, paradoxically, in order to arrive at an open, relaxed state of mind, one must engage in skillful application of mind, rather than a passive, open awareness. I think there's some wisdom there. So that, um, you know, we might wish that we could just sit and have that sky-like mind where everything comes and goes without obstruction. But, uh, and if you can, great, on that day. But if not, we may want to skillfully redirect and apply the mind in some active way. So if there's a lot of thinking, we could redirect the mind towards some neutral object like the breath or the body, our regular meditation object. Uh, we can also redirect the mind to have skillful thoughts, such as thoughts of metta or compassion. Um, in fact, those formal techniques, if we were doing metta practice, or loving kindness practice, one form of that involves repeating phrases, which are thoughts. You know, we repeat, may I be happy, may I be healthy. These are thoughts, and so you're deliberately creating skillful thoughts that are leading away from suffering. This is a use of the thinking faculty of the mind on the path. There are other techniques for moving away from obsessive thinking. Um, and they do, and you know, some of them may involve a more uh, open awareness of some kind, but not in a passive way. We might do um, noting practice, for example. This is another way of applying thought, actually. Uh, the practice of noting is where we um, 
deliberately note to ourselves what is happening. And so, you know, silently, but as we're sitting, we may note, oh, touching. That's often the the word used for the sensation of the seat on the cushion. And then um, sadness, and then memory, and then in-breath, you know, things like that. And we just go along and note it may sound a little burdensome, but it's actually not, especially when the mind is busy thinking. All you're doing is redirecting that thinking to being in the present moment and noting what's going on. So that's a very useful way of using thinking. If there, the thought can even be more refined, we could just say thinking each time we note a thought. Or we could say memory or planning or fantasy, something like that. It's kind of a way to keep the thinking mind from getting in trouble, i found. You know, a mind that's got a lot of thinking or a lot of tendency toward that, it's likely, you know, maybe while you're mindful it's okay, but then it's likely to spin off as soon as we inevitably lose mindfulness. And the noting tends to keep the mind on track a little bit more. It also takes energy away from obsessive thinking by giving it a nice simple, in-the-moment thought. So that's using your thought energy towards something in the present moment instead of something that's flying off on its own. There's a, a sutta about a cow herd that gives two different situations with the cows. And the first is um, when the crops are still in the fields and the cow herd is herding the cows, cows along and she has to keep careful watch over all the cows, otherwise they'll get into the crops, harm them in some way, and then people would be upset and so forth. So we may not have literal experience with herding cows, but I think we can get the idea that this is referring to also our mind, is that when there are um, situations where there's a lot going on, there's this danger that the mind is going to get caught up because it's busy, agitated in some way, then we have to keep somewhat careful watch over it with the noting practice or something else. Um, we can't give it a lot of long-ranging leeway. Instead, we're, we track it somewhat carefully. It doesn't mean that we try to end the thoughts, but we just try to contain them or keep them from running amok like the, like the cows in a very, um, you know, in a, a gentle way. You wouldn't run around beating on the cows, um, but you just gently herd them so that they don't go into the crops. There's a Zen saying, um, before one studies Zen, mountains are mountains and waters are waters. After one gains insight through the teachings of a master, mountains are no longer mountains and waters are no longer waters. After enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains and waters are waters. You may have heard that one. It's a good one. So I think we could relate it to what we're talking about. 
in that um, when we start out, we start out in the case where thoughts are thoughts. <laughs> you know, they, uh, we believe our thoughts. We think that they're real. We think that they're important. We think that they're true. I used to think that when I thought something, that meant it was true. Um, this is often true at the beginning of practice, because, but it can also be true for anyone at the beginning of a sit, if we've just come in from being in the conventional world and engaged in you know, regular kinds of activities. So this is the case, like I just talked about, where we would want to redirect the mind or keep careful watch over it or do the noting practice because we're, we know that we're in a state where our thoughts um, have a lot of power, essentially, and we want to be careful not to, uh, not to let that take us over. But interestingly, as, as we do that repeatedly, and I know we don't always do it successfully, the mind gets caught up, but then we come back, and if we just repeatedly and patiently uh, take energy away from obsessive thought through noting or through careful mindfulness, um, we move toward this second statement where mountains are no longer mountains and waters are no longer waters. So we, what I think what that means, at least in this case, is that we start to have a different relationship to thoughts once we're no longer believing them 100%, right? That's the issue at the beginning is that we believe them completely. We think they're real and lasting and true. So, but we start to have a different relationship. They start to look a little bit less substantial when we're not believing them quite as often. So we start seeing them as things that come and go, things that change repeatedly, and things that are conditioned by circumstances. That's something that we don't often consider regarding thoughts, but they are conditioned, um, meaning that they arise based on what's there. You might have a certain thought. It's obvious when you actually look into it, but we don't usually think that way. Like, for example, if you're at work and um, your coworker comes, walks by your office, who a co-worker that you've had some difficulty with or that you were on a project with and uh, they didn't pull their weight or whatever it was, something where you've got something between you, that person goes by and you have that thought, oh, you know, there's that person. And so first of all, you may not notice that that thought is conditioned. By what? By seeing. <laughs> you wouldn't have had that thought if you hadn't seen them at that moment. It's obvious when I say it that way, but we don't usually think that necessarily. But our thoughts come in all the time as running commentary of what's going on, as a reminder of what we remember about something that we're seeing now. Um, and then all these thoughts just get produced. That's how the mind works. And if we believe every single one of them as being true, um, then all we're doing is reinforcing our habitual conditioned way of seeing the world moment by moment. Now, it's also true that there are thoughts that um, they're still conditioned, but we don't, uh, we don't see the external conditions for them. You know, you're sitting in meditation and a random thought arises about something. How did that thought come? I don't know. <laughs> don't worry about it. But um, 
what I do know is that as long as we've been doing this practice of trying to keep keep watch over the mind and not let the thoughts run away, even those random thoughts um, don't have as much, you know, they just don't have as much power. So even these come to be seen as less substantial. Basically, thoughts are becoming less interesting to us overall. Uh, they're not automatically alluring. And so, lo and behold, they begin to fade away. <laughs> A lot of the reason that thoughts are so prominent and so oppressive in our minds is that we're feeding them all the time by believing them and telling them that they're true, so they keep coming back. But if you just practice repeatedly seeing them and letting them go, um, they act that's actually when your thoughts start to go away. Um, not when you sit down and say, okay, i got to make all that thoughts go away. It's a process. You don't believe in them, they'll start to go away. Not all at once. <laughs> not all at once, but slowly and surely, um, thoughts will, will become less powerful. And so then... That is actually the beginning of what we would call transcending them, if you like that word. Or I think I like seeing through them. You know, they just become a little bit less substantial. Or being free of them. We're free of them when they don't hold so much sway in our mind. And then they really do start to thin out. Eventually, uh, we would see, maybe see all of our thoughts as just ripples of energy in the mind, which is basically what they are. And we also see them as no longer part of our self or of who we are. So mountains and waters are all just phenomena. So they're no longer their individual things so much. I'm talking about sitting in meditation and you know, having this transformation of how we see thoughts. I remember I mentioned earlier that there's a sutta about the cow herd and that it had two situations. And the first one is this one where the, the crops are still on the, in the fields and the cow herd has to keep very careful watch. The second one is after the crops have been harvested. And there's nothing much in the fields. In that case, then it's okay for the cowherd to let the cows wander a little bit. In fact, they get a little bit of a break. The sutta says that they can go up on the hillside and kind of watch, just watch from afar, you know, just make sure the cows are okay, keep, keep count of all of them. So I think this corresponds in our analogy that we're making here is that We've, when we've removed our attachment to thoughts, then it's really not such a problem that they come and go. That's when we have that spacious awareness. They come, they go. They're just thoughts. They're just ripples of energy. Basically, the thoughts at that point are pretty benign. We're not going to be having raging, passionate thoughts um, because those are the ones that we find substantial. And so those have kind of uh, settled out at that point. So they can be there, there or not, thoughts can be there or not, but the mind won't get itself in trouble. Now often we start to think that um, this other way of seeing thoughts is more real, more true, 
you know, more real than believing our thoughts in a sense. And it's certainly a, a better relationship with thoughts to not believe them than to believe them. Um, it's definitely a good view to have as we walk the path, is that we should be very careful to see thoughts as mostly insubstantial. And there's definitely a lot of work to do on the path that requires us to not be continually caught up in our story and not to engage with um, our understanding of ourselves as some kind of an absolute truth. So I'm, I'm supporting this idea of um, seeing the thoughts as increasingly unsubstantial. But eventually we do start to feel that this is a little bit unsatisfactory too, because um, we've kind of replaced one fixed view with another one. You know, we started with the idea that thoughts are true and real and substantial, um, and we suffered a lot for it. And then we replace it with thoughts are totally unsubstantial. Um, it's better not to have them, and I know how to do that now. You know, there can be a little bit of, of that coming in. Um, so we, we, you know, we're resting in the simplicity of thoughts just being thoughts. But um, there, there comes to be a time where, yeah, where we see the thoughts again as something useful to us in a certain way. And it's, we can't ever go back to totally reifying them once we've totally seen through them. So it's kind of safe in a sense, but we can, we can be simpler about it. You know, we could look at the mountain and actually just see a mountain, and it's not a big deal. Um, we know in the back of our mind that it's not going to be there forever and doesn't say anything about us, but um, we can still have the simplicity of just registering a mountain as a mountain and waters as waters. Our friend is our friend, and our history is our history. It doesn't have that charge for us anymore. Once we've seen an alternative to the fixed reality that we started with, it's not completely, it's not possible to completely buy into fixed reality again. So then we're able to live conventionally um, in peace. That's what this third part refers to after enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains, and waters are waters. You can just live. It's a gradual process, and the, the stages are not totally separate. Um, it's not like you're in this one, and then this one, and then this one, absolutely. We may have areas where we have seen through our thinking, and we don't get caught. Um, and then we have other areas that consistently trap us still. And we know, you know, we know that we still get triggered in certain ways. We still have a few buttons that people can press and obsessive thoughts that we could have about that. But I've laid out the process here that if we keep working at seeing through more and more of our thoughts, of not putting energy into the ones that tend to obsess us, um, and replacing unhelpful thinking with helpful thinking when we can, you know, doing that active discernment, uh, then gradually we do purify the mind and let go of the unhelpful. So it's not that there's a black and white idea that when you sit down to meditate, thoughts are bad and you shouldn't have them, and that that's the aim, and 
when I finally get rid of them, then I can, then I'll really be meditating. Um, you know, it's more that thought is something that goes on. And what we're purifying is, is our relationship to it. We start out by having to actually use it. We use thought to overcome other thoughts. And then the process of doing that, we start to see through what thought is. It's just a thing that happens, has, it's conditioned, it has certain functions, it can be skillful or unskillful to order away from suffering. And once we've really understood thought as it is, seen through it, seen that it's not personal, uh, then we, we are, that's the process of becoming free of it. I think until enlightened people die, they still have thoughts. I think that's what, because they still have sights and sounds. Um, but they don't bring suffering to that person. Yeah, so maybe I'll stop there and see um, if you have any thoughts. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly it's, it's, many people are finding it to be an intense time. And yeah, we can start to, to think about that. And I find that one skillful way to redirect is toward compassion, you know, toward the wish that um, what we're experiencing is the suffering. And one way to, there are many ways to be with suffering and uh, it's an art form to learn to be with it in a way that isn't uh, triggering in sense. But what the, that's exactly what mindfulness teaches us is how to be with suffering with either wisdom or compassion, which are two ways to be with it that don't bring additional suffering. Normally what we do is we either take in the suffering and suffer a lot, or we ignore, deny, you know, etc. And either of those extremes isn't so good. So with compassion, you know, you don't, you don't want to get overwhelmed. Um, so there can be a sense of, for me, um, just wishing well for the world, knowing that um, in my very heart, I can see that I have the tendency toward suffering, and also the tendency toward love and mindfulness and wisdom and freedom. Those are both there. And so 
I don't think I'm particularly special in that regard. So I can wish that other beings who I know also have the same potential are able to choose. More beings are able to choose more to move away from suffering. I have a sort of a positive image of um, that potential gaining the upper hand in the world. It, it doesn't have to be something that you you know, let your logical mind then work on and say, well, is that really possible? Um, no, it's not needed. If, I'm, if I drop more into the heart space and I'm open to the suffering of the world, I can still say, you know, it's possible. There is this potential in every human heart. And just rest in that, um, and that possibility, the fact that I, that I want suffering to end, other beings could want that too. I don't know if that's helpful to you or not, but I, I find somehow that there's a way through, uh, maybe the words that I used aren't perfect, but that there's that wish, that wish not to suffer, which is compassion, um, can hold a lot. Um, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're putting that energy into the world instead of the energy of anxiety. Yes. Yeah. No, it's probably non-topic question. Um, I've been reading a lot of um, Buddhist literature, like the, in one book called The Eightfold Path, and then uh, Samadhi develops wisdom, wisdom develops Samadhi, this other book. But I, I find that these, um, these Ajans, these, these bhikkhus, these venerable guys, they're incredibly literate in, in like the English language and their just their intellectual capacity to express themselves through prose, prose through writing is really um, it's like what is the, where these guys are going to school, Oxford or something? You know, it, it's it's I, I I guess because they seem these these uh, native Indian or, or from India or, or Thailand these these monks they're just so um, highly educated and just the way that they think is just so 
mm. intellectual and the way they put it down in the writing. And, and mm. It's like they, they've all gone to, to some very high higher education institutions to, to acquire such. So are you asking if that's a necessity to... No, no I, I, I guess I'm just... First of all, they didn't necessarily, but uh, <laughs> that might be your impression. I'm just reveling at... I, I'm, it amazes me how, how intellectual they are. Uh-huh. And, and so maybe that's just part of their, their years in, in, in Buddhism, that they just developed uh, such a... Uh, Superior um, academic level per, per se or something. I don't know. I'm just well, impressed by it. Yeah. Um, Maybe you have a comment about that. I think this is a a, a good topic to bring up um, in that you know this makes an impression on people, right? It obviously made an impression on you. I would say this points toward the clarity of their minds. In a sense, you know, they've um, they don't have a lot of those excess thoughts going everywhere. Now, of course, people who write books tend to be the ones who are fairly articulate and interested in laying things out in a book kind of format. So, I would also say that of the overall set of people who practice as monks or who practice Buddhism seriously, even among lay people. You know, there are some who are inclined to write books and some who aren't. And so you'll encounter in the books the ones who have that kind of mind. But maybe I can touch something more in your question by assuring everyone here that any kind of mind can get enlightened. Um, there's no uh, qualification there except that you do, um, you know, you need to be able to meditate, probably, but almost anyone can do that. It doesn't matter if you have an artistic mind, if you have a psychology kind of mind, if you have a scientific mind, um, if you're really an athlete and never thought about thinking much, um, although some athletes are quite intelligent. Um, you know, I'm trying to be careful with the wording here, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Actually, what we're doing is... Um, is learning to see in a way that is clear enough that we're not bringing on more suffering. And we're learning to open our heart and feel our emotions in a way that is clear. Emotions are also not very clear sometimes. And something that people who've practiced for a long time or who've done it intensively tend to have rather clear emotions. And they can um, have an emotion and know how to uh, respond from the best part of that emotion. So there's, um, that ability is not restricted to different kinds of minds, but of course you'll have to do different practices and maybe you'll want to work with different kinds of teachers depending on what kind of proclivities your mind has. Um, and it's interesting, uh, now where my mind is going with this, is that if you read the Pali canon, there's a bunch of characters in there. You know, there's the Buddha, but then there's, um, you know, his two chief disciples, Sariputta and Mogalana, and there's his attendant, Ananda, and there's other names that come up. 
And if you read a number of the suttas, you start to get to know these people a little bit. You know, they, you know, who knows if they were exactly as described or so forth, but they have different personalities, you know. Um, Sariputta was really intellectual, actually. He was the chief of, in, foremost in wisdom, and he gives these very precise teachings that are laid out with lists and structure and not a lot of emotion in them. Um, Ananda was kind of soft and loving. Um, I mean, of course, he had good wisdom also, um, but he was much more heartful and he loved the Buddha and he cried when the Buddha died because he wasn't quite an arahant yet and, and all these um, other things. And you see that different characters have different qualities. And so, and many of these people were fully enlightened. So I feel like um, the practice is just bringing out the best in whatever mind we have, whatever heart we have. It's purifying it, like this text says you know, that I read earlier. And it's not that we're purifying it because it's bad and we have to clean it up somehow. But um, it's just got a little bit of stuff that's preventing it from shining as truly as it could. And so um, sometimes people can write wonderful books, and that's their contribution to shining with the Dharma. Other people do, um, you know, found nonprofits and help the world. Other ones go meditate in caves, and we're awed by the fact that they sit for months at a time. And that probably that's so that there will be a lot of inspiration for different kinds of people. You know, somebody may be inspired by one representation of the Dharma and not as much by another one, but that's why we've got a lot of them. So I love that you pointed that out about the Ajans who have been writing books. They are wonderfully clear, and that clarity is possible in, in many different kinds of minds as they progress on the path. Does this help a little bit? Yeah. yeah, and we don't lose our personality either. <laughs> Sometimes people are worried about that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.